Welcome to Front and Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, where awakening people from all sides come together to help write our new story and build upon America's sacred purpose, unity and diversity, while expressing their individual freedom in the context of sacred community. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Maxenny and Steve Behrman. Today, my partner Steve and I are really looking forward to resuming our podcast conversations after nearly six months. We had to set aside front and center as we focused on some other important projects, and we'll talk more about that in another podcast. But for today, we are excited to kick off the new year with an incredible guest to enlighten us and help move us to that more beautiful and just world our hearts know as possible. Symbiotic culture. What is that? I am very curious to learn about this, and that is exactly why we have the founder, Richard Flyer, with us. And I'm going to ask my partner, Steve Berriman, who has known our guest for many years, to introduce Richard and symbiotic culture. Steve? Well, thank you. Our guest today is my good friend and colleague, Richard Flyer, who spent the past 40 years building symbiotic networks on the ground in the real world. Places like in poor, in poor neighborhoods in San Diego and the very mainstream city of Reno, Nevada. His new book that he'll tell you about, Birthing the Symbiotic Age, Ancient Blueprint for a New Creation, is about activating heaven on earth for real. A great way to start a truly new year. Welcome, Richard. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you, uh, finally, uh, Michael. <laughs> nice to meet you, Richard. I heard a lot about you. Okay, well, let's jump right in. Uh, for people that don't that don't know, what is symbiotic culture? Let's start with that term. What is symbiotic culture? What does that mean? Well, you know, my background actually partly is in biology. Um, so the idea of symbiosis, uh, at least as I am meaning it, occurs in nature where organisms come together for mutual benefit over a period of time. So applied to human society, symbiotic culture would be envisioning a society where mutually beneficial interactions would be happening at every scale from family to street to neighborhood to community to nation to world. And I know it seems like that could be light years away from us realizing that given how wars are breaking out all the time and and there's the, the sense of uh, insecurity worldwide. Uh, but the idea of symbiotic culture is something that while a big idea uh, to be implemented globally, the potential is for each of us as individuals to actually live this way as a way of life wherever we are in the world. So it's kind of a, a, a fractal empowerment idea that can happen simultaneously in each community uh, around the world. So even though it seems to be this huge global concept, uh, changing the world actually can't be done at that level itself. It has to be done locally where we actually interact, you know, where we work, we play, we, you know, where people worship, um, uh, you know, and enjoy the environment you live. So this is an idea to be implemented in local regions in the real world. You know, over the years, I, I'm sure many people watching this are familiar with uh, 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 Paul Hawkins' book a number of years ago uh, that listed uh, uh, 250,000 or more different separate nonprofits, beneficial organizations seeking to do this. And somehow there hasn't been the coherence to actually bring these together into, into one big movement. So I think the, the secret sauce, and I'm very excited because I've been working with you on this project for, for two years now, something that's very exciting to me is that 
there is a secret sauce and there's an ancient blueprint. You call it an ancient blueprint for new creation. So tell us more about this ancient blueprint and how it can activate this symbiotic culture. So I was going to think you were going to say first, tell me about the secret sauce. So you want the secret <laughs> sauce or you want the ancient blueprint? <laughs> okay, well, start with the, uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. I'll leave the sequencing up to you, Richard. <laughs> well, the, the secret sauce and the ancient blueprint are really related. So maybe uh, for the viewers, um, maybe I'll start with the secret sauce because that has to do with the practical. So secret sauce really just means in a fragmented, divided world, polarized, hyperpolarized world where people have trouble um, getting along and agreeing on issues and they can't even many times get along and, and have a shared understanding of facts. So in other words, like even there's a hard, hard for people to talk about even facts, which should be empirical and easy to compare, but even that's a challenge. So underneath the hood of symbiotic culture and building these community networks are a series of universal principles. For example, the golden rule would be one. Also universal values slash virtues. So universal virtues. And these are very common that we all know and that are cross religious, spiritual, but not religious, civic, secular um, communities and context. And that would be uh, sharing, cooperation, collaboration, trust, uh, faith, honesty, respect, love, integrity, courage. So you get the idea. So that's something that people can all get behind. So that's universal principles, universal virtues. And then the other part of the secret sauce is to figure out what kind of common purpose can people get behind in a practical way? So in this case, a common purpose would be something like, how can a community uh, produce and consume more local food in its own region? And then how can you get together all the organizations, leaders, and citizens that care about that? So that's a common purpose. So that's part of the secret sauce. If you don't have a common purpose, and a specific kind of common purpose that lends itself for people to get along, uh, then it's really challenging. And then the other aspect of the secret sauce would be, how do you build a network structure in a local community so that it itself does not become a competing silo and end up in competition with all the useful projects uh, that are happening in, in a local region? So, the part of the secret sauce then is a gentle, organic, distributed network structure that we call symbiotic networks. And in the book, um, in the last part of the book, is going to be a how-to on how to bring all these pieces together, including common purpose and a gentle network structure to help people to activate their own networks um, without a lot of external support. Uh, so those are some of the elements of the secret sauce. I, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, I'm very curious. I know our, our viewers are this ancient blueprint that helps us uh, establish that, uh, that secret sauce that helps us connect above and beyond the tribes and silos that we find ourselves in. No, it's, it's a great point. So the secret sauce that I was describing, it's also based on an understanding of what the problem is. And to me, for the last 50 years of my, my work, I've identified the problem is division, competition, and the separation into separate silos as part of a cultural paradigm that I call a culture of separation. So this kind of culture of separation has been around and, and it's been cycling over the last several thousand years in the rise and fall of empires, which tend to have a very, very... Um, a similar arc of development and then collapse. So we have a global empire now, which is basically one economic system that is based on competition. And it's, but it's at its root, it divides people into these silos to make them governable at the local level. So people aren't 
working together in local communities in a way that they may um, in an idea of, of symbiosis. For example, say church-going Christians aren't necessarily associating with people in regenerative community movements. But that's by design. The system is designed to keep people from actually establishing that dialogue. So the ancient blueprint, I was just giving you a context for why the ancient blueprint is important, how it works. So the ancient blueprint was really something, it's a spiritual idea, a pattern. It's a pattern that you would see within nature in terms of ecosystems. But where did those ecosystems come from? It reflects uh, to me, and this is my experience, a deeper spiritual reality where that same pattern that gave rise to those ecosystems, natural ecosystems and creation, is found within a spiritual reality that can be experienced as a transcendent idea, this highest goodness, this highest beauty, this highest truth. And I think the clearest articulation of the ancient blueprint was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describing the relationship between the transcendent, that is loving God, with the imminent, loving your neighbor. So you, when you combine love God or the transcendent with love your neighbor or others in a community, you get a ancient blueprint which reflects an actual patterning of the nature of reality that can teach us and guide us how to build community-based networks and local systems, society, based on that idea. So unfortunately, our world is not based on this ancient blueprint. It's based on uh, some other pattern. And that other pattern, though, is imploding. Its systems are breaking down. And that's because the current system does not have at its core these spiritual virtues. In fact, our, our system, our culture has anti-virtues. For example, instead of the virtue of generosity, which is part of an ancient blueprint, the virtue in the world or the anti-virtue in the world is avarice, greed. And But that's not necessarily the whole pattern within a human being. So while greed and that part of our nature, yeah, it's, it's true, it's real, um, generosity also is. So the ancient blueprint is important because by connecting with this transcendent principle, it works within us as a human being to make us capable of operating from that frame and from that worldview. And then we can, after, the, after having this experience, we're in a position to unify our community. We can bring our community together. We can consciously uh, do that. So that's the connection between the ancient blueprint and how it gets deployed within these symbiotic networks. I hope that wasn't too abstract, but... Well, we're going to get very specific very soon. I, I'm very soon going to talk to you about your personal experience where uh, you actually had a, uh, a, a whole self-experience of, uh, of this luminosity. Before we get there, I want to see if Michael has any, uh, if you have any questions at this point or do you want to, uh, or anything that's come up for you uh, so far. Yeah, um, I'm trying to hold back from too big of a grin. I now know exactly why my partner Steve has been so excited about working with you over these last two years. And that's where I've, I've heard it about it uh, from a very general diff distance. But everything that you just said, uh, I couldn't resonate with more. And at the same token, uh, the, the, the local implementation and on the level that you're talking about and bringing people together is exactly what's going on inside the political reform movement at the yeah. same token. Uh, I could ask a whole host of questions, but and taking it into the political realm and the connection of what you're doing is, uh, but I love it. I can't wait to learn more. So please go on, uh, uh, please. I, you okay. know, I, I would yeah. like to relate it to politics, if that's okay, to make oh, it absolutely. So personally, you know, myself and my own experience over the last 50 years, especially in the last several decades of, 
you know, seeing where I stood in terms of how do I relate to traditional political change. So I've come to the point where I believe that the system is that you can't fix it in the normal way that people try to change it through competitive um, spheres, you know, people fighting it out in the political sphere, um, even, you know, especially it's within the two party system. So what I've learned is that there's a parallel way of developing what could be considered a new form of governance. And I'm gonna give you an example of how that works. So in 2005 in Reno, Nevada, the general business and political climate, that means within the, the city council, the mayor, county commission, and the business community in Washoe County, Nevada, at that time, you know, almost 20 years ago, it was assumed politically that small farming was a thing of the past, that what was more important was taking available land that could be used for agriculture, but converting it to a parking lot, a condo complex, apartments, housing subdivisions. And in, in that area in Northern Nevada, the fertile farmland was within maybe 30 miles of downtown Reno, Nevada. So I'd like to draw your attention to a, a parallel way of engaging politics. It's a kind of jujitsu way. So the direct way of dealing with politics would have been to get a, a community of leaders who cared about local food and try to pressure the government by lobby, by going to city council meeting, by trying to get the city government and the county government to back a particular plan. So that's the traditional political approach. What I learned was something radically different, but I believe more effective. And that is, is that you don't initially try to change the political structures, you do it indirectly by changing the consciousness first of the community. So you build a movement around local food systems where you get people to get behind the idea of growing, producing more food and consuming more food locally. So then who has an interest in that? The ranchers, the farmers, the people producing like value add, like honey, the people that are consuming, the restaurateurs, the grocers, the people buying food institutionally like a school system, people concerned about like food co-ops, organic food. So you bring all the players together in a way like a symbiotic network, which we did. And you bring that network together in its own political space that's independent of existing political and religious frames. So it's an independent movement that has its own set of purposes and goals, which is to grow more food locally and consume more food locally. And as a result of that, within six months to maybe a little longer, we started to shift the consciousness around the whole community. We're talking about tens of thousands of people and you know, maybe under like 500 organizations. Once that shifted, then the politicians actually had to follow. So no longer was it acceptable to pave over farmland to build a parking lot. What happened instead was the bandwagon now was local farmers markets community-supported agriculture that connected farmers to local community. The food cooperative itself was developing and became a fastly growing uh, concern. Uh, food security and food issues that the, say the food bank would deal with uh, became on the table. And as a result of this approach, eventually the city itself invested money in building the area's first public farmer's market downtown. So we didn't take the direct approach, which is try to you know, compete and fight it out and pressure the system to do what it should be doing. Instead, we focus on the area of food consciousness, build a new meta network, which was incorporating all the local individual corporate, like micro corporate brands of the businesses and the nonprofits and even local government all together to build a new network where everybody's benefiting and that in turn changed the political reality at the local level, but it actually then went to the state level where the state of Nevada itself evolved within five years to do a program called We Think Local. So in fact, the, to me, and in, in, in my book, I'm gonna get into this, 
while I'm not focusing per se on traditional politics, I'm focusing on building what's called a parallel policy or a parallel polity and a system of government that or governance that's independent of the system and yet interdependent with it. And I believe, and this is my own opinion and strategy, that's the only way forward rather than a political party approach at the present time. I think you got to build a grassroots movement first that's going to inform new parties that will emerge. But I'm not concerned about the party structure or the you know five-year plan. I'm focusing on what I believe is needed now to just make a a, an actual practical but radical transition, you know, that can work. Well, to that that point, what we're doing with the new is to do exactly that, is to build a new kind of party that becomes a model that will change the way the existing parties, that will force the existing parties to change the way they operate or continue to accelerate the loss of their market share. Uh, and while we're doing that, is to, and how we're doing that to build a movement is to elect people at the local level throughout to demonstrate what a new way of politics can be by working together in a cooperative fashion to bring together all those stakeholders and do what you just explained up in Reno, but to do that in communities throughout the country that will demonstrate how a new kind of politics done with cooperation can change things. And then while we're doing that, that will force the other parties to do it. Part of it has a little bit of a time frame because of AI and the impact on so many people's lives that are being uh, understood now uh, and creating a new kind of party that will get inside the system, not within a direct attack, but all we have to do is elect 10 or 12 members throughout, out of 435 throughout the country from local communities. And we will become a fulcrum in the House of Representatives that will force collaboration to dramatically open up the system to begin to make accelerate the change so the government can become a facilitator for the kind of local change that you just described took place in Reno, but do that from a federal level as well and the state level and the local level. And that's what we, we need is to get government as a facilitator of these kind of changes instead of an inhibitor. I could go on. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> got a lot more to cover, I'm sure. I, I, I want to interrupt for a second uh, because there's something really important that we haven't mentioned yet. And that is, uh, the, I'm going to shift to the personal here. Um, the opening part of Richard's book, the first chapter, uh, is not really about political organizing or community organizing or anything like that. It's about a distinctive, personal, unique personal experience that Richard had that has informed his work and has firmed up his sense that this, um, this transcendent uh, aspect of human reality that has been so dismissed by our mainstream postmodern culture where only the material world is real, uh, Richard is not coming from a, let's say, a philosophical or theological standpoint in, in relation to any of this, but a personal experience. So I think right now, I think our, I, I'd like for our viewers to uh, get, in the, get a sense of that experience so that they understand the arc of Richard's work from the time he was 12 years old. So Richard, tell us a little bit more about that experience before you get back into the nuts and bolts? You know, if, if I could respond to um, what uh, Michael said, and then I'll get right to it. So okay. it's really interesting, Michael, um, your perspective. So our perspectives are, they're, they're not the same, and that's okay. They're in parallel. Um, right. But I've come to a different conclusion than you. It's not good or bad, better or worse. It just is. But it's important to understand the distinction. See, I, and I'm about to share these experiences that led me to this conclusion. So Mike, what I've concluded is that even at the level of, of politics and even with new alternative forms of politics, that I've come to the conclusion that we still have to go deeper, that the transformation is first building a movement that is not ostensibly political first. So in other words, this obviously would support what you're talking about, but it's just a parallel 
uh, strategy. It's just a different strategy. It's not the same. And the reason is, you know, I was talking to this expert in building communities, and he said something really interesting that shows the distinction about one view versus another, which is this. He said, well, you know, if you get people to collaborate in community and working together and to cooperate with one another, that that will then lead to spiritual development. Now, that may be partially true, but I think that is exactly backwards and inverted from the way reality actually is and how human beings are. In fact, in order for people to be able to collaborate in community and to cooperate and to work at that higher level, I've come to the conclusion that they need psycho-spiritual development defined very broadly uh, for that to even happen. In other words, people have to step into to be able to work in community beyond just ego concerns and self-interest. So I'm now going to share the experiences that I had that led me to, down this path. It's not against what you're saying, Michael. Do you, oh, no. do you Let me add something, though, to it. Um, from my experiences in the political side, people won't take the simplest of actions until they feel the heat personally. Uh, whether it be a spiritual change, which often you, is exemplified with people on addiction, that you, you, know, you hear they have to hit absolute rock bottom before they'll actually make that spiritual change. Well, that's the same thing with their willingness to cooperate on a political level and see things and realize they have to work together is they have to feel the heat and realizes that they absolutely have to get in there because their loved ones, their family, their community is at yeah. high risk. And that is what is happening right now is people are, are under tremendous pressure and beginning to see the direct impact on themselves, their family, their children, their communities of continuing on the current path we're on. And that is forcing them uh, to, to open yeah. up and become willing to change or willing to take that higher road of a transcendent uh, to religion, to a God and that. So we're seeing very much in parallel. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting what, what you're saying, because uh, in my book, I, I describe five different local community networks, uh, one in San Diego, California, and then the rest in northern Nevada, in Reno, Nevada. And what I have realized is you're absolutely right. People come together in fundamentally new ways in response to crises. So the, the, the classic example would be that people come together after a natural disaster across the political divides, religious divides, as human beings addressing a common survival in, uh, instinct, both personally and collectively. So people just naturally open. But what happens is within a week or two, that goodwill and that opening, oh. it's gone. Yeah. And I, somebody had asked me once, uh, uh, a was actually a spiritual teacher, and she said, Richard, is it possible for people to come together 24-7? like that. And, and I said, yes. So partly that's what my book is about. The only distinction I'd make is it's one thing to get people to form coalitions that are political within the, even an independent aspect politically from the way that, that I've been bringing people together in a way that's independent of the political system, so it's more grassroots. That's the only distinction. And I would love to explore, maybe not in this conversation, but sometime, you know, how what I'm doing could support your vision. Um, but they are distinct. They're, they're not the same, and I think that's okay. I think it's important for people to see what their role is, like what each of us, what part it is, and to be really clear on it. And the clearer we can be, uh, the greater the possibility of collaborating in the real world. So back to the transcendent experience. Steve, is that okay? Did I? Yeah, yeah. You said you, I was perfect that you can put things in context. And because uh, I think that that's exactly right, that these are parallel tracks with the same intention of mutual benefit. Our slogan is from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. So that's what you're talking about. You're talking about having people uh, elevate themselves above and beyond these tribal distinctions, disagreements about policies and so on 
and recognize why don't we go for that which we all truly desire. So you're on target. Now, your personal experience that oh, everybody's been waiting for. Well, you know, the, the, um, the, the coincidence in time, at least when we're, when we're taping this uh, today yeah. on, uh, on January 4th, 2024, is I, I literally did launch the part of the chapter one of my book where I describe this experience. So let me paraphrase it and then relate it back to this conversation if I am able to do that, if I'm able to, to, to remember how to do that. So I, I guess what's led me down this 50 year arc to the perspective I have about the nature of reality, about the, the um, what's happening in the world and the cyclical nature of human society over thousands of years um, it's been informed by direct spiritual experience. And Steve mentioned this as the ancient blueprint. So let me give you just a context. So I won't go into the detail, the level I did in, in, my, in my book, but when I was 12 and living in Alexandria, Virginia, as a, as a kid, just a normal kid, I, I began spontaneously to have a, an experience that was just different than, than normal uh, in a sense that when I went to sleep, I had the experience of energy and it, it was something that um, progressively developed where I would be perceiving, in a sense, see, seeing colors and light and sound and um, what I experienced through that process was getting connected to something that it felt much bigger than myself, something that I was part of this larger universe and it felt like I was directly connecting to it, that I felt like I was not only part of it, but I was connecting to everything. And that's what happened to me was a series of experiences over a period of years that connected me to what I'm just describing as a transcendent, it's a principle, transcendent idea. I, I, I look at it as real, that there's an ultimate reality that we're part of, that within this world uh, that we're in, the materialist world, where we're focusing on survival, on our own business, our families, and consuming and having things and political fightings and war and dealing with nature, you know, all of these things um, distract us to some extent from this deeper reality that we're also part of, that's part of our nature. So a connection to this transcendent principle is really no different than the instinctual desire for food, for water, you know, uh, sex, um, you know, all of those things that we see as kind of really intrinsic, the desire to transcend our ego and ourself is also endemic within humanity. And I'm bringing this up because after this series of experiences where I, I would say, and from my observation, I'm not a philosopher or a theologian, but from my observation, that there is an ultimate reality that we're part of that's objective. And as a result of that, I began to see uh, and have a dissonance with the way I started to perceive the culture. And the culture that I was growing up in, literally, we're talking about uh, early 70s. As a kid, I didn't tell anybody about these experiences, but I went started on a journey of observation of what was happening. And I came to the conclusion that the way the world is that's fragmented and warring and polarized and so with so much suffering and pain that it was fundamentally different than the world of this transcendent that also seemed to me to be real as well, which is there was unity and there was this uh, sense of being connected to everything and that we were part of something, that we could count on it, that we could trust it, that there was this something that was so powerful that we're part of, and we just have lost and forgotten it. So I had these, I was in these two worlds, this world of the transcendent, this beauty, this one, you know, this sense of unity, this sense of connection. And then growing up in this society, I saw a society that I call a culture of separation. 
with a materialistic worldview that basically says that the only thing that's real are things and that there actually are only separate things. See, that's a mechanistic scientific view that I understand very well because I'm trained as a biologist, so as a scientist, so I could see that. Um, that point of view has lasted for many centuries and has been developing, and, and to some extent, that materialistic view has taken over, and it's what the main driver for the world's economy, and it's politics. So this main view is has become in, ensconced, it's entrenched, it's like a machine-like. So seeing the contradiction between these two ways and worlds, it's what drew me into trying to understand what I could do to transform it. And the ancient blueprint is a way of describing how Jesus taught about how the transcendent becomes imminent in community. That's how I looked at it. So I'm not coming from a, a traditional Christian perspective, but I'm not also a, not a non-Christian. I would say from that point, I began to be a Jesus follower because I, I saw that as a really a clear articulation about reality, like how the world really is. And I saw that what Jesus was sh sharing with us, I called the ancient blueprint because I also saw that through history. So Mahatma Gandhi in 1899, he read the same Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. He called it the law of love, and he reframed it within his Hindu perspective. And then he took that idea, which I call the ancient blueprint, and he created a movement to nonviolently resist and to get the British to leave India uh, prior to, you know, that for centuries they were uh, a, col a colony and they were extracting, the British were extracting wealth. So Ga Gandhi's approach with this ancient blueprint was to use nonviolent direct action on a massive scale to make India ungovernable by the British Empire. And he achieved that. But in parallel, he took the same ancient blueprint and he came up with this concept of a village awakening movement that involved getting the Indian people to, to develop from within, both spiritually, economically, and also politically to strengthen the local spiritual, economic, and political uh, structures of the Indian society at the time to support their capacity for independence. So, the, so Gandhi's strategy involved this village awakening movement. So fast forward to the 50s and then the 60s, a colleague of mine, Dr. A.T. Ariratne, who's a Buddhist from Sri Lanka, took this idea of Sarvodia, but then changed it into a Buddhist-based approach, now a Buddhist frame, and Dr. Ari was able to take what I call this ancient blueprint and then reframe it for Sri Lankan society in 1958. They just celebrated their 65th anniversary December 7th, 2023, they have successfully taken what I consider this ancient blueprint from how do you take this transcendent principle and, and, and inject it, to embed it, to embody it in a real community at the grassroots, and they've succeeded. In Sri Lanka, they build a parallel society movement of 5,000 villages and communities that are in a national network. Those parallel uh, societies are also it have a parallel culture. They have a parallel economic base that they are developing consciously. And yet they're not fighting against the existing political federal system going from the like a local established political structure of the local, you know, council, like part of their federal system to regional to national level, the federal system. So they're not fighting against the political system, but they are actually building parallel community movements. And to bring this, cycling this conversation, Michael, back to strategy, I was sitting with the president of what's called a Sarvodia Society, which is the nucleus in a village community in Sri Lanka, to implement this parallel society movement. I was sitting with them because they, they were also president of their village banking system. And I asked him this very what seemed like a simple but a profound question. I said, okay, 
you're now in a town of 15,000 people. The Sarvodia Society has 50% representation. You have 50% of the population, 7,500 people are actually involved in this parallel society movement, and yet you have this established political structure of a local council. And then I said to him the obvious. I said, why don't you elect a slate of candidates and just get them to get elected in this formal part of your community, the, the government? And he said, we don't have to. We don't have to, because what we've achieved with the half of the population that are involved in this parallel movement, they have naturally shifted the consciousness so that the people who end up running for office are already um, affected or infected. They're already influenced positively. So there's no freaking way that anybody who is a, now going to run for a political office in that town, there's no way that they could just operate in the past through self-interest, through greed, through corruption, through you know cronyism of working with local business people. That so they've broken through that, and it's just a different methodology. And I, I don't know if that was answering your question, but I wanted to circle back. Uh, Steve, help me out. I'm sorry, I, I went oh. on and on, but I hope it's useful. Uh, Steve, I don't mean to interrupt if, if you were, but no, it absolutely makes total complete sense. Uh, something that's been on the bottom of my political emails for 12 years you, is a quote from Buckminster Fuller. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing models obsolete. Yeah. And, and that influence for those people who don't have, yeah, they don't have to do it because everything you said, I'm just sitting here going, this is exactly what's going on. Uh, I was going to make a comment earlier when you were describing the 50s that you were talking about in the early 70s and said, yeah, that's that generation behind me. Uh, and I'm from that baby boomer generation. I'm from that summer of love of 67 in those years. Uh, and we did not have an older generation to help give us uh, assistance and support and act as sages, if you will, of wisdom to help us avoid what stopped the hippie movement, which had it right with peace and love. And that feeling, I was going to say, were your parents hippies because what you were feeling was what we were attempting to do. But we got screwed up with the drugs and the materialism and the advent of the advertising business that realized how they could manipulate, which is just yeah. propaganda, yeah. manipulate the masses. Uh, and uh, But we had it close. And now what... <laughs> I've been working on within the political thing and just did last month was complete a transition and, I, and to say, we can no longer, my generation, the baby boomers, be the leaders. We have to step aside and be offer some hopeful sage wisdom and support yeah. of that next generation of leaders mainly led by millennials or people on in that sector, they have to take the lead now. They're ready to. They're amazing people with, they can utilize the tools of technology, et cetera. But my generation, it's time to step aside uh, and open the door widely for the new generation of leaders to take, take place. And I tried to do that with the common sense leadership. Unfortunately, of the six of us, I'm the only one that was willing to do that, and I feel like it, uh, that I helped bridge that transition. But now we've got these millennials uh, taking the charge, taking the lead. But anyhow, um, thank God. I'm excited as heck. Uh, I, I want to contextualize one thing before we return to Richard, and that is that one of the great uh, slogans of the Sarvodia movement is, we build the road and the road builds us. And it, it intertwines the spiritual practice with the practical business of connecting the good and extending mutual benefits throughout a community. And this has been something that's really been missing in most of the political movements. I find that many of the political movements in this country, since the civil rights movement, which was um, 
in a way, a religious-based movement, uh, there's been an unhinging from this uh, from this spiritual aspect. And so it's the activism has always been around mitigating the symptoms, mitigating the symptoms. And um, there hasn't been until now, and here's a great uh, opportunity through this uh, symbiotic culture movement in this country to really link uh, a spiritual practice that is above and beyond religion and non-religion. There's no religious attachment to it. It's simply the, the recognition that above and beyond our um, our religious beliefs is a is a transcendent um, uh, a transcendent reality that every religion taps into in one way or another. And it's not to say that all religions are the same or there's no reason to have religions. It's simply saying that uh, it's uh, as uh, Alan Watts said, uh, most uh, religious practices are worshiping the finger rather than noticing where the finger is pointing. So here the finger is pointing toward uh, mutual benefit, toward the golden rule overruling the rule of gold. And uh, so I want to make the transition here for you, Richard, how the, what happened at Sarvodia, because you were early influenced by Sarvodia, I maybe want to talk about that, how that informed your work in Reno and some of the projects in real reality in mainstream America that took hold, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Great. Thanks for the question. Um, so I found out about the Sarbodia movement in Sri Lanka. Wow. It was like the late 1980s. So um, it was a while ago. And I had at the time already started doing some community work, but Sarbodia and their uh, approach uh, really affected me, and it was just very exciting to see a movement that combined what they call personality awakening, which in simple terms just mean your capacity to cooperate, to collaborate, to have, um, you know, to share and to have what they call equanimity and joy and the joy of others. Those are some of their virtues, and they they developed this process a personality awakening. Well, it's not a separate spiritual practice like you would see in the West. It's actually an integrated process of personality awakening in the context of family awakening, of village awakening. So these are all intertwined. And what was just so amazing about what Sarbodia accomplished was that they built infrastructure, concrete infrastructure networks around what they call 10 common needs like food, shelter, spiritual and culture needs, and et cetera. There were 10 basic needs. And they, they created this uh, common needs framework as a way to get people to be able to work uh, cooperatively beyond their differences. And as many of your viewers may realize that there was a civil war in that uh, country uh, for could be on and off for decades. Uh, even in that context, they were able to bring people uh, together to work at the grassroots. So what I learned, the insight that I got from that successful model was, whereas they were building actual stuff, like in a village that didn't have irrigation, they would literally build an irrigation uh, canal uh, so that they could both get fresh water, but also create more agriculture. But they, they also built schools. Um, they built village banking systems. So they built all this infrastructure. And I noticed that as a quote unquote developing country, they really needed to have their method focus on building stuff. But in the West, we are, I would say, overdeveloped. What I noticed in Reno, especially, was that there was this phenomenon where you have a problem like homelessness in a region, and you have maybe 10 to 20 organizations dealing with homelessness. They may have some level of collaboration or cooperation, but then I thought to myself, wow, they may or may not realize it, but in the system approach, not taking a system approach, but taking a siloed approach as separate organizations, even with some cooperation, there's just no way they're going to end homelessness in the model and then in that system uh, 
uh, structure that they're part of, but either they know it and are just doing their best to make minor change, but they'll never end homelessness at all. And yet they go forward um, to some extent trying to believe that it's possible, but it'll never happen. That's why I thought to myself, well, do I want to be the person who cares about homeless people in my community? Am I going to create the 21st homeless organization? Why would I do that? So then I thought to myself, okay, if I cared about homelessness, but I didn't create a new separate siloed organization like everyone else, what would I do? Well, what I would do is I would actually create a network context to bring everybody together systematically. So I call that going from a single siloed to a multi-siloed network approach. And this is part of the offering that I believe humanity needs at every scale. But I'm focusing primarily at the scale of a local community where many of my readers could hopefully react and implement. It doesn't take large, you know, a Congress of global leaders to save us or the UN to save us or a federal system to save us or even our state to save us. The government's gonna save us. No, we don't have to wait for them. In fact, we can do this ourselves and set the pattern. So that was the insight I had regarding building multi-siloed uh, networks that connect the good. And the first uh, uh, project was what we called a local living economy network. So other people might call it a bi-local movement where you're promoting the, the importance of supporting locally owned, main street, mom and pop, family owned and other local businesses that 51% or more of the ownership was vested from people that lived in the area within 50 miles of Reno. So that's how we define what local was. It was the majority ownership where they can make decisions um, in terms of purchasing, doing business, that kind of thing. So we were able to, we began a movement in 2003 and it was, it was really wonderful. Um, uh, people responded uh, to it because the languaging I think that I was using at the time, it, it really uh, overcame some of the more negative uh, things that were happening. And it turns out that when we were launching this movement, the second Persian Gulf War was launched in 2003, I believe, in April or May, there was this, so our whole culture was divided around pro and anti-war. So they say, never let a crisis go to waste. So what I was able to do was, I realized that I was part of a community, but also a society and a world that was in conflict. And in that case, that internationally based war. And I was with a network of leaders and I just simply asked a question. Hey, everybody, I know you're tired of all this polarized bullshit and you just can't stand it. Is there something we could do together that can, we can make a difference, that we can bring everybody together? Is there some way to do that? So we started brainstorming and people started coming up with different ideas, but one thing kind of grabbed hold and it was, hey, you know, we each have personal relationships with local business owners that we do business with versus chains, you know, like Walmart or Starbucks or the others. So we all have personal relationships with um, these business owners. Why don't we just focus on that? That's something that can bring together left wing, right wing, liberal, conservative, religious, non-religious, secular, atheist, you know, the gamut. And that's what happened. And we had our first meeting. And what it, it's like is like crowdsourced collective intelligence, where you are tapping into the, the amount of information and relationships that people have. But in the current siloed system, it's consciously dividing. It's like the assets of a local community are frozen. They're separated on purpose. We work separately in our own spheres and we compete with each other. So this was an amazing experience in how to 
create a breakthrough in this polarized environment that's fragmented. And what I did was I asked, you know, the participants, there was about uh, 15 people, citizens and some leaders. And, and then we agreed just what we do is we put butcher paper up on the wall. And it was as simple as saying, hey, everybody, let's come up with categories of businesses like restaurants, grocers, you know, farmers, ranchers, um, and other kinds of organizations, including nonprofits that were working in their spheres. Anyway, we had all these main categories on like 10 different big pieces of butcher paper. And then people just got up and they started writing down the direct personal connections to these leaders, to business owners and to nonprofit executives. And they wrote down and we ended up with a couple hundred to start. So that is the simple way of getting people to tap into their knowledge that's currently separated and fragmented, get it all together so that people can then take the next step, which is to then identify some of these leaders who may be themselves super connectors, who know a lot of people in these various uh, clusters of their own networks, and then simply find a way to bring them together through the shared principles and the shared virtues of, yeah, being, you know, let's build a collaborative community, a cooperative community, a community where love and sharing is normal. This is before we had a word symbiotic culture. So this was happening and it led to a movement of many, many hundreds of, of businesses and nonprofits that had major impact. So we repeated that process within a separate network built around local food systems years later. And then we built another network around neighborhoods at the small neighborhood scale of two to three blocks where we had hundreds of different blocks within the region, build a neighbor network. And we did the same in arts and culture and built you know, like events, celebrations. So all of these things were following the same principles and approach. Um, anyway, wow, that was that was a lot. And I'm thinking maybe you'll have to censor my my. Uh, no, we don't. Editing. We don't. We don't censor anything. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about that. I this is. I'm just starting to do podcasts, and I I think I really need to kind of, uh, you know, maybe. Well, we'll just put a little tape over your mouth in the video when we redo the video. That's all. It'd be no, no I was problem. Just getting, I was getting <laughs> an, animated or excited about it, so I I used profanity. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Being authentic is is most important. Don't worry about it. I use it. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. So, Michael, uh, we're coming to. Uh, we can keep going a little bit, but um, we want to make sure that uh, people know a little bit about uh, how to how to find Richard. We're going to put uh, Richard's Substack uh, up on there. Any any comments or questions? I know you probably have a lot of them uh, to uh, to kind of reflect on 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 this. Uh, interview well the uh only to say two things one is we need to have an extended conversation more about the connection of politics and stuff but that's for another conversation but we like to ask richard a, a closing question and that is uh what is for you please to describe and i'm a, i'm really looking forward to your answer and by the way audience you did not know this in advance this is totally off the cuff. Richard, we'd like to close by asking our guest to describe what is the more beautiful and just world your heart knows is possible. Please describe that for us. Mm, wow. What an amazing question. I, I guess I would say that my book is describing my own personal journey and doing that for myself and living that way. Like not as a intellectual construct, not waiting for the whole world or the nation or the state or my region or my city or my neighborhood to live that way, but for me to step it up and to, and to, to uh, as best as I can, as best as I'm able, deal with my own stuff inside that keeps me from being a person that could even live in a world that our hearts know is possible. So what I do is I, I live that way, even though in general, the world 
um, isn't operating that way. So that would be the first thing uh, to say is that um, we can't wait for the rest of the world to, to, to think that way. The good news is there's probably millions or tens of millions of people that in their own manner are building the world that their hearts know is possible as in all the projects and organizations and businesses and activity all over the world today. So my vision would be that, and I'm hopeful, is that in sharing my book, that many of these people who are already doing good um, can gain some a greater insight on how to make what they're already doing more effective by building these community networks that require a higher level of attention to weaving them. So the way the world looks to me is that, you know, within the next couple of years, I'm envisioning people in responding to what I'm sharing that on their own, that they feel that they could empower their entire community beyond just the scope that they're operating now and that they can come together, that these people from these different threads that are already leading their own community efforts, that they're able to come together and that they're able to do it universally, that is at the same time worldwide. So now thousands of communities, I call it fractal empowerment. So it's not exponential growth, it's simultaneous growth because an idea develops that is not necessarily less profound, but profound, but simple and straightforward and able to be implemented. So my vision of uh, that world is that um, I'm able to share what I know with everybody and say, so could do what I've done. That's that gives you motivation and purpose every day to get up despite what challenges you may face to move ahead. When you were saying that, describing that, it made me think of something that Gandhi was famous for saying, which is on this street yeah. poster, you can't read the first part. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Yeah. And it takes people to focus on that, to get, get the meaning of that. It is the way, it's living it every day. Yeah. Uh, I start every morning with a, a few minutes of meditation and prayer uh, to help me uh, live that, move towards living the way I want to be. Yeah. And hopefully I am. So thanks. That's, that's excellent. Um, is it okay to share my, uh, how the people can get involved if they want to? Sure, why don't you do that? I was gonna Absolutely. do that, but you go ahead and do it. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, so I've, I've, launched my book as a weekly series. It's going to go over the next couple of months, building a campaign around these ideas. And it is at Richard Flyer. So my name, Richard Flyer, that's F-L-Y-E-R. So that's Richard Flyer, one word, dot substack, dot com. And, or you can just search for symbiotic culture and substack or Richard Flyer. You, you should be able to find it. And it's a, it's a free subscription to get access to this uh, sharing that I'm doing, and we're planning on having live Zoom calls with the readers, so it's not a traditional uh, book release. It's more of a campaign and a public conversation uh, to hopefully align a lot of these separate threads so that we can see a way forward together and co-create this world uh, that we are all hoping to see. Not just wow. hope, help yeah. contributing to building uh, the building. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Wow, this has been great. Uh, <laughs> can't wait to have more interactions uh, with you. So very, I can't say uh, thank you enough. Likewise, I was happy. I'm really happy to meet you, Mike, Michael. So look forward. We are going to have uh, links to uh, Richard Substack and we encourage people to join this community because it really is a collaborative community. It's interactive. We're in the process of writing part three of the book, which is really the uh, activation of all of this uh, work. And part of it comes from the feedback that we're getting 
on parts one and part two. So this is a very exciting uh, project that's going to take us another bunch of months. Uh, and uh, it, it's exciting to me. And um, I hope it will be to you because it's, you know, uh, you know, as in the Gandhi quote, uh, as Bruce Lipton and I said in Spontaneous Evolution, heaven is not a destination, it's a practice. And yeah. so this is a way of practicing heaven on earth as a reality uh, to, uh, to avoid the uh, hell in the handbasket that, that the, uh, the regular world seems to be going toward. Can, can I make uh, just say one last yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So the idea of bringing heaven to earth uh, for me is, is not like, it's not metaphoric. It's actually not, it's not a story. And I, I believe from my own experience that you can actually connect to this transcendent as a power and it can be embodied within us. And it is uh, essential uh, to have this experience so that we could unify our community and we need to first unify all the parts of ourselves. And that's what this process is about. And that's, it's an ongoing effort of growth. I mean, you don't have to wait until you have some experience, but it's something that's it's um, built in. But each of us has a connection uh, to that and have different types of experiences already. Um, I, I think this is about honoring it and, and literally in the literal sense of bringing this transcendent power through us into the world as and make it real, embody it, embed it within our families, within our organizations, within our neighborhoods, within our communities. And ultimately, I don't think there's any alternative but to, to look at it and, and to uh, make it real rather than complaining or trying to wait for someone else. We each can do this. We are doing this. It's a matter of just stepping up and, uh, you know, stepping up our game. Well, God lives within all of us and we're all part of, of the whole. Uh, and that's important. So we'll have to close this conversation. And if you're watching on YouTube or listening to our audio podcast, please subscribe, please like, and of course, please share with your friends and followers. If you would consider becoming a supporter so Steve and I can continue our work and uh, that would be wonderful. You can do so by going to frontandcenter.us, which is a locals uh, a platform, uh, or you can search us on Rumble. There you can become a supporter, and Steve and I would be very appreciative of any support you can give. Remember, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, it's a long journey to the more beautiful and just world our hearts know is possible. Let's go there together. Thank you. Thank you.